Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Hey, y'all. Today, we have a conversation between old friends Rick Rubin and Michael Stipe. Along with his former Georgia-based band R.E.M., Stipe helped popularize what was once called alternative music. With his open-hearted lyrics, Stipe gave voice to the sensitive and misunderstood among us, with hits like The One I Love, Everybody Hurts, and Losing My Religion. On today's episode, Michael plays Rick a new song of his called Future If Future, produced by Andy LeMaster. The song, as he explains, was released in partnership with Earth Percent, which gives artists a simple way to support groups fighting climate change, something Stipe cares deeply about. Michael Stipe also talks about the upcoming solo album he's recording and how he always intended to be super famous, and then what it was like when it actually happened. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Michael Stipe. Hello, Rick. It has been a very long time since I've seen you, and you look great. You too. How long have you lived in New York? It depends on which government agency you talk to, but I've, I've been here since 1987. I see. Do you ever go back to Georgia? I spent most of lockdown in Georgia with my mother, my sisters, and uh, a few very close, uh, my, my family. I had some vulnerable people in my family, so uh, I spent most of lockdown there. And then uh, starting last summer, summer of 21, was able to travel to our home in Berlin because I now live between New York and Berlin. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then came back when things got bad again with uh, Delta. When you're in Georgia, is that at home in the house that you grew up in? No, it's a misnomer that I 
grew up in Georgia. My father was in the army. So I traveled my whole life with him. He was in Vietnam twice. He was in Korea once in my, during my lifetime. And uh, we would pick up and move every couple of years. So I was born in Georgia. I returned to Georgia uh, when I was 18 because my father retired. He and my mom moved to Athens because there's a college there that my uncle went to. He was this great, he is this incredible activist and spent uh, the 60s and 70s in Athens uh, as an activist at the University of Georgia. My mom and dad liked the sound of it. And so they moved there in 1978 when I was 18 and I followed them. I was living with a punk rock band in Granite City, Illinois, and I ran out of money and I, I moved um, with my tail between my legs. I moved to Athens, Georgia, thinking that it was a hippie cow town and that I, I didn't fit in because I was this, you know, urban punk rocker. And it turns out that one of the most incredible punk rock scenes in America was happening right under my nose in Athens, Georgia, and I became a part of it. Unbelievable. What are, you, what are the odds of that being the case? It's just a remarkable, you would never guess it. Also that it would be, you know, the band that kicked it off, of course, are the B-52s. And that's a band, in my opinion, that have not yet gotten their due recognition for the degree to which they altered the trajectory of contemporary music. Who were the other bands in the Athens scene at that time? Like post B-52s, pre-REM, what was that window? Pre-REM would include the Method Actors and Pylon, and that's about it. With REM came a band called The Side Effects and then a couple of other bands. There was a whole scene going on in Atlanta, but there's always been this weird thing like San Bernardino LA County kind of thing between Atlanta and Athens. There was a band called Vietnam there. There was a RuPaul's early band, RuPaul and Wee Wee Pole, a band called The Now Explosion. And that was, they were all really fun people and we would hang out with them from time to time. But it was really Athens had its own thing going on. A lot of that had to do with Jeremy Ayers, my mentor, the first, uh, really the first love of my life uh, in a way. And he had moved from Athens where he grew up to New York. Uh, became involved in Andy Warhol's factory as a drag queen named Silva Thin, who Andy loved, uh, but Paul Morrissey, who made all the movies, didn't like very much. Anyway, Andy really hung on to Silva until Jeremy decided to move back to Athens. And then he was really profoundly involved in uh, the beginnings of the B-52s and um, helped kind of set the stage for what Athens would become as this like hotbed of, of new music. What was your first memory of the punk rock world in the United States. So we're not including Sex Pistols. We're not include like your first U.S. experience of punk rock. What was it? Oh, it predates the Sex Pistols. It's, oh, um, really? I was in detention uh, in high school in 1975. And under my desk where I sat, someone had left a, a torn up copy of Cream magazine. And there was an article written by Lisa Robinson about CBGB. And she was comparing... Uh, the CBGB scene to as a black and white scratchy TV to the technicolor bloviating, bloated, rich, we're better than everyone else kind of rock scene that was happening in modern America and saying, this is so much more real and so much more raw and so much cooler. And these are the people involved in it. And there was a photograph of Patti Smith. And she looked for all the world like, um, you know, like a vampire, yeah. uh, black and white picture. She's got her eyes wide open. And I, I saw the picture and I was like, these are my people. And I read the article and I was like, this is it. So I wound up accidentally uh, subscribing to the Village Voice. Uh, my sister had one of those Columbia House subscriptions where you paid a dime and you could get 10 magazines for free. Mm -hmm. And the Village Voice just sounded like fun. So she asked me to pick a few magazines and I picked that one. And suddenly I was immersed into the whole CBGB scene. And I started following it and I bought Patty's 
uh, first album the the day that it came out when I was 15 years old. And I decided then and there that I was going to become a singer in uh, in a band. And uh, that was going to be my life. And I, I and I, I naively moved forward with that. And I uh, outrageously and very luckily uh, succeeded at it. It's unbelievable. It's a beautiful story. And was what was your experience of music prior to the punk rock experience? Did you love music from young childhood or no? I loved music, but I was only exposed really to pop radio. And the five years that are kind of probably most significant to me are the years that we spent in Texas. We had moved from Frankfurt, outside of Frankfurt, uh, Germany, uh, where there was pop radio, but it was all German. Uh, so it was like the Beatles singing uh, Michelle Maibel in German. I distinctly remember that as a child, uh, standing in a cabbage garden, if you can believe it. It was very German wow. in 1967. And moving uh, as a seven or eight-year-old to Texas and then hearing pop radio, which included Tammy Wynette and a lot of country music, but then also the Archies and the Banana Splits and whatever, uh, you know, the Flintstones were primetime TV at that point during the Vietnam War. Yeah, the, my exposure to pop radio uh, during those those years between 67 and 73 that was really primo amazing radio uh, in terms of music that i really clocked as a, as a young teen i always cite rock on by david essex yeah which i then kind of extrapolated into the song drive by rem it's it's a very very that whole album in fact is really referencing the 1970s and the song by song you can go to everybody hurts is nazareth the band Nazareth wow. covers Love Hurts, which was an earlier song from, I think, the 1950s or 60s. Uh, Drive was my uh, homage to David Essex and Rock On. Uh, the other song that I always name is my now very, very, very dear friend and a man who I love very much, but Elton John put out Biddy and the Jets. And I had never heard anything like that before. It was absolutely mind-blowing to me that, that the, the production, it was really and I'm talking to you about this, but it was really the production. Yeah. The song is a great song. And he's, a, of course, an amazing artist. But the production of that song was so whacked out. And the production of Rock On by David Essex was so whacked out. But I think that was coming out of, um, you know, what was happening with the glam rock in, in, in England, the early kind of Mark Boland, very early David Bowie, Slade. The Bay City Rollers might have come a little bit later, and they were very pop, of course. But I think a lot of that production stuff was coming from there. So after you saw the picture of Patty, did you go to find her? Is that is that the next step? You went to New York? That was what drew you? I did not go to New York uh, for another three years. I didn't actually meet Patty until 20 years later. Wow. 1995 that we actually met each other. Incredible. Incredible. We can continue from 1979 when I first came to New York, but um, you and I go back a long, long way. And we all have our pasts that are maybe a little bit embarrassing, but I know that you used to spend a good bit of time in New York at Exterminator Chili. Yes. Remember that place? Loved it. <laughs> My two best friends worked there, Tom Gilroy and Jim McKay, both artists. And Michael Imperioli, from, who went on to do The Sopranos, worked there as well. But um, you used to go for lunch and uh, occasionally for dinner. Yes. And the person who managed Exterminator Chili, whose name I can't think of now because I haven't thought about it since then, managed band. And we ended up signing that band called Masters of Reality that were a super cool kind of psychedelic, uh, psychedelic rock band. I remember Masters of Reality. That's pretty cool. And also, but Wire ate there. Wow. Um, the Chili Peppers uh, made a video there, I think. And that might have been before your time. Yeah. Thinking about the early days of punk rock and starting your post-punk band, I guess. Would you would you qualify R.E.M. as post-punk? I think so, yeah, yeah. It was alternative music. Could you possibly imagine that it would become as popular and as 
mainstream as it ended up being? I think, uh, to be completely honest, I think that was my intention all along. I wanted to be as big as I could possibly be. I just wanted to be really super fucking famous. And not by any means necessary, no. uh, which is what you find in today's culture. You know, there are people that are famous for the sake of being famous and, you know, then they become a billionaire with a makeup line or whatever. That's that's a little insulting, frankly, for those of us who actually work uh, at more than just business. But yeah, I wanted, I, I knew that I had something to offer. I didn't know what it was when I was 19 or when I was 15. But, you know, over the course of a few records, I figured out that I had a voice and that, that, and then much later, I found out that that voice was quite unique. And uh, and I started really enjoying the process of writing. And, you know, Peter, Mike and I and, and Bill, when he was in the band, were the best of friends. And we supported each other. We loved each other. We kept each other alive many times. And we had a great grand adventure together, uh, which, you know, for me lasted 32 years. Yeah. The, the, the postpartum after 32 years is, let me tell you, that's something. <laughs> that's that's a high that you don't come down from easily. And so it took me several years to kind of, I had really had to step away from music because I'm all in, you know, I don't do anything halfway. I accept the the, the defeats and, and the embarrassments along with the triumphs uh, and the hit singles, but I don't do anything halfway. And so when, when R.E.M. finally disbanded, it, it, I needed to take a break and I needed to not think about or look at music for a long time. And it turned out it was like five years before I actually kind of accidentally fell back into it through Fisher Spooner. Uh, and then uh, working with Andy uh, on that project, I, I realized that he and I had this really good rapport as as co-writers and, and we started working together. And now we're involving all these other people. Galen, Leah, do you know her? She's this astonishing uh, singer-songwriter from the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. She has this astonishing, incredible, incredible presence and a very, very unique voice. And uh, she, our voices meld together beautifully. So so um, Galen uh, is, is uh, contributing on the record. Um, some other people have stepped in to to do work, and I'm just really very excited about it. It's 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 a very different. You know, I have no representation now. I have no record company. I was I, I was under contract since I was 22 years old, and now I'm 62 years old, and uh, and I'm I'm a free agent. I can do whatever I want, and I don't. There's nothing forcing me or making me make the choices that I make, other than just wanting to create things that are beautiful and that that inspire people in some way. The reason I asked about what you thought was possible was I remember being in my parents' house and seeing, looking at the uh, New York Times Sunday calendar section, and there was a full page ad for the police at Madison Square Garden. And I remember looking at it and I think, I think this is a mistake. The police can't play at Madison Square Garden. They play at the clubs. I, you know, they play. I went to the Roxy and to the Ritz and to, you know, to uh, the Palladium. They could maybe play at the Palladium. They can't play at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> that's not where. That's not where the police play. That's not where the groups that I like play. That must have been after Roxanne. Yeah, you know, my band, uh, my former band, REM, opened for the police. Actually, not at Madison Square Garden, but at Shea Stadium wow. when they played there. And we had the same booking agent who um, Mike and Bill, uh, the drummer and bass player for REM, former drummer and bass player, knew uh, Ian Copeland. Uh, very well. They worked for him in Macon when, when when he first started, and he put us on this bill. It was us and Joan Jett uh, and the Blackhearts and the police, and we played a 20-minute set in the pouring rain. I was 23, I think, and um, Andy Warhol was there, and uh, Joan Jett came and said hello, and I was really, because I loved uh, the Runaways, and I loved Joan Jett. Who else? Matt Dillon came 
Matt Dillon was a big fan, and he came by and said hello. So that was a that was an august uh, afternoon for us. What was it like walking out onto that stage? What was the feeling? I imagine, uh, what, what size places were you playing at that time at 23? Oh, Just clubs. For, we were yeah. playing clubs to seven people, Rick. Nobody knew who R.E.M. was. Nobody cared. And that's fine, you know? I mean, it was just... It was like throwing raw meat to dogs. You know, they, they had no idea who we were. We were on and off before they could get angry and like throw bottles at us. Uh, and, you know, we did a really tight set. Everything was very, very like Ramon speed at that point with R.E.M. So it actually, I kind of developed a singing style because the band refused to play slower than they did. Mike was really loved the Ramones and really loved a really fast uh, bass part. So everything was really like rockabilly Ramones kind of fast. And I got tired of singing that fast and I thought it was boring. So I started slowing down my part. It's one thing I could do. They wouldn't slow down. So I slowed down my part and that actually became a singing style for me. By the time we recorded our first album and a song like Talk About the Passion, they were playing everything really fast and jangly. And I was just singing very, very slowly and holding my vowels. And that became what that became, well, something like a, a singing style, I guess. I'm so happy to see, I have to say, I feel uh, I miss you and I love you. And it's so nice to talk oh. to you. And I feel like we, I feel like there are a million things for us to talk about because everything you said is the beginning of another conversation. Like we could talk about the village voice alone forever. I was a pack rat when I was a kid. And I subscribed to the the uh, Village Voice, and at one point there was an entire room of my family house that I grew up in, floor to ceiling, the entire room of just Village Voice newspapers because I saved every one, oh. and I, I didn't save them in any way that I could refer back to them. But when my mom would say oh, we have to throw away these newspapers, I said you you can't throw them away because I might have to refer back to something in those. There was no way for me to do that, but I right. wanted to know all of the information in all of these newspapers. It was our life's blood. We have a lot in common, Rick. I, I, I'm, I'm, Packrat would be a very friendly term for what we call me and my father. I'm a hoarder. <laughs> and I, I happen to have really good taste and, and I've had a fascinating life thus far. So the things that I've hoarded are, for the most part, pretty interesting stacks and piles. And, you know, Warhol had his... Um, time capsules, which was just cardboard boxes. And he would jam everything that came to him would go into a cardboard box and that became time capsules. It was my friend, Todd Everly, who uh, used to, he's a photographer, very talented artist. Uh, and he worked for Vanity Fair forever, but he was called to the Warhol Museum and uh, he was handed the task of photographing time capsules uh, that Warhol had left when he died that had never been opened before. And he found some unbelievable things. I still regard Warhol as the greatest artist of the 20th century. The close second being Brancusi. Mm. Brancusi managed to bring modernism and traditionalism together, not capital T, but small t traditionalism together in art uh, and, and do so in a way that was, that was not only elegant, but, but, but in, insanely timeless. Yeah, and, and felt new. It's, it's interesting when someone can make something traditional and modern and it, it lives in both worlds. It still feels new. That's yeah. the thing. You see a Brancusi piece and you're like, what is this? This is the most elegant, the most, I'm using that word a lot, but it does describe, I Good think, word. his- It, it yeah, fits. His work, yeah. I remember one of my fondest memories of things that we got to do together was we went to Manhattan Center for an event uh, for Johnny Cash. And it was a tribute to Johnny Cash, but he sang at the tribute. And it was um, a beautiful, I remember we were sitting up in the left balcony and it was just a beautiful night. And um, I was just so glad that we got to do that together. <laughs> I think I think that's because of you that I've managed to make it backstage before the show. 
And I met Johnny for the first time. I had met June uh, several times before because of charity events that we were both attending, uh, but I had never met Johnny. And as it turns out, of course, that was one of, that was in the last year of his life. So thank you for allowing me to meet Johnny Cash, one of my great heroes. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Michael Stipe. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. We're back with more from Rick Rubin's conversation with Michael Stipe. When you guys first toured, what was your first tour vehicle? Uh, a Dodge van. Dodge van. Yep. Green. H how many years were you guys in a Dodge van? We didn't have a bus until 1984, so we were four years in, the, in a van. It's just, I, I think it's interesting for, for people to understand, 
at the time that you guys became who you became, what work went into it? Because I don't know that that really exists in the world anymore. It's a, it's a little bit of a lost people going out on the road and building up a following and someday right. getting to play at the Rose Bowl, let's say, where, where I remember when I heard that you were playing at the Rose Bowl and, and you were already REM and I was surprised you were playing at the Rose Bowl because like, <laughs> that's the Rose Bowl. It's unbelievable. Patty Smith um, uh, did an interview with The Guardian. She was quoting someone, I don't know who said it, but in, 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 re in referencing uh, work as an artist, uh, it's 10% um, inspiration and 90% perspiration. And in the 1980s, we certainly um, put in our, our fair share of perspiration. And in the process of, of building up that, uh, that audience and a reputation as a band, we actually got our chops. You know, we grew up in public. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. I didn't know that a bass guitar made the low notes until our second album. I didn't know that. I knew that it was the one with four strings. That's all I knew. I mean, I was that ignorant of music and, uh, and, and, and yet we managed to create this, these songs that were really quite stunning. And we were lucky to work with people like Mitch Easter uh, and Don Dixon in the early days to, to help us kind of form what was a sound, you know, at the time in the early eighties, everybody wanted the vocal really loud and the drums really loud because it was post-disco. And even if you were, no matter who you were, if you turn the drums up, you're going to have a hit or you're more likely to have a hit. And we were like, turn the drums down, turn the vocal down, turn it. We were the people that were saying, turn everything down. We don't, we want everything quieter. Thank God for remastering because we're able to go back <laughs> into those recordings now and, and bring it up to speed to yeah. what, what these things sound like with digital technology, uh, with the advent of, 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 of all of our devices and the way that we hear things now is very, very different from 1982. Was the road from the Dodge van up to the state, eventually stadiums, was it a consistent road or were there like moments on the way where there were breakthroughs? Can you remember the first time something big happened? Well, the first big thing was when I walked on stage for the first time ever. And I was like, this is it. This is where I, like, I loved it. And half the time, again, I was, you know, I trance when I perform. So half the time I was kind of not really there. Mm -hmm. I, I could be reminded of something and be like, oh yeah, that's when I stumbled over and I hit that note that I don't usually hit. Or that's when someone threw something and it hit me in the shoulder. But I would go into really a trance state when I performed. And 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 that that's very lucky for me. You know, it, it kept me from becoming a terribly self-conscious. I was as pretentious as anyone. Uh, and I and I I, I embrace that pretension. I love pretension as as you know, if you think of it as as a way to rise out of yourself and to allow yourself to become something bigger than what you are, uh, then wow, I'm really pretentious and look where it placed me. I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, I love to perform. What was the question, Rick? That was a good question. We were talking about the first moment where like something big happened. So the first one you gave me was stepping on stage and realizing this is for you. And then in the band, when was the first moments like, oh, this is, things are things are changing? I can answer that. And it, and it, it echoes the rest of our conversation. Yeah. We were voted band of the year, jazz and pop, Paz and Jop. Yeah. Village Voice. Village Voice, Murmur, our first album, 1983, uh, record of the year. Wow. Uh, by the Critics' Choice, and that was over Michael Jackson's Thriller. So the enormity of that to us, I, we, you know, we were living in this rundown Fleabag Hotel in Times Square. I would eat one knish a day. I knew where I could go to get it. I knew where I could go and bat my eyelashes and get someone to buy me a beer uh, and not have to, you know, not have to get laid in the prop. But I, I, you know, I would, I would, I lived off of a knish. We were living on $5 a day and a bag of M&Ms that my uncle left when he traveled through New York. We had nothing. And our record was the Village Voice 
record of the year over Michael Jackson's thriller. We were playing clubs to 12 and 15 people at a time, you know, but, but anyway, I mean, those were the days, you know, it was good fun. Uh, and, and we made the most of it. And, and I'm, I'm glad I had those experiences. And what was the next like breakthrough moments? Like, Oh, this is bigger than that. What, what, what were the, just looking for like the stages of development. Fall on me was uh, the video that MTV had to play. I was disgusted by most music videos. I thought they were cheesy and stupid. So I refused to lip sync and we refused to perform in them. And Fall on Me became kind of a minor hit and so uh, in America. And so the video I was I shot with a 16 millimeter camera in a rock quarry outside of Bloomington, Indiana with a guy that I had a giant crush on at the time. And I uh, developed the film, turned it upside down, ran it backwards, ran the words to the to the song over this really shitty black and white footage of a rock quarry. And that became the weirdest music video of the year on MTV. And so that was a big moment because I was like, wow, I can manipulate this. I can, I can, I can make them do things that they don't want to do just because they have to do it because the song is that good. Then of course we had a hit song, top 10 song with uh, the one I love. And that was the video was by Robert Longo, who's a a pop artist and a, a, a great friend. And then the next big moment after that was, was the green world tour. And then after that was losing my religion. And when losing my religion hit, you know, if I ever had, I, I'm not a person who has ambitions. If they're there, they're unconscious or they're subconscious. I, I don't know which to call it, but I did always want to be really famous. And I didn't realize what really that entailed. <laughs> and looking at it from the other side, it's nice to be anonymous again. Uh, I'm on the subway and nobody knows who I am. They don't look at me if uh, anyone under the age of 30 does not even look at me because they just register old. And I'm fine <laughs> with that. It's totally amazing. But Losing my religion was when I went from being someone that was recognized by people in my age group uh, who loved a certain type of music to being universally, wildly, insanely famous and on the street, like I couldn't go anywhere. And I, it was okay. It was kind of charming. In New York, people yell whatever they want to yell at you. They tell you if they like you, they tell you if they think you suck. And I kind of love that about New York. And I, I never liked LA because I never knew where I stood with people there. Everyone's your friend there. It's very isolating and very kind of aggressively calm and I can't stand it. But, and I'm sorry, Los Angeles, there are aspects to it that I love and there are people there that I love, but can't, can't, can't do it. But losing my religion really changed it for me. And the one thing, if I ever had an ambition, it might be to have a song of the summer and losing my religion became REM's song of the summer. And that was, that was thrilling. Yeah. What do you remember about writing? First, first of all, when you wrote it, did you know that song was special? No, no. In fact, we released it as the first single thinking that it was going to set up the next song, which was uh, something much more pop. I don't remember what it was. And then eventually I think Everybody Hurts, which was a big ballad. And that became a hit song uh, around the world. And so that was also really good for us. But And that's a beautiful video as well. Yeah, no, we we didn't know it was going. I mean, it's such a weird song. We had no idea that it was going to resonate the way that it did. What do you remember about writing it? I changed one lyric. I remember that's me in the kitchen. That's me in the spotlight. No, that's me in the, that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. That's me in the corner. That's me in the kitchen. So what, what I was pulling from was being the shy wallflower who hangs back at the party or at the dance and doesn't go up to the person that you're madly in love with and say, I've kind of got a crush on you. How do you feel about me? So there's this whole relationship that's happening only in the person's mind. And he doesn't know whether he's said too much or hasn't said enough. So he's like in the corner of the dance floor, watching everyone dance and watching the the love of his life uh, on the dance floor, dancing with everyone because that's the most exciting person. 
or he's in the kitchen, you know, behind the refrigerator. <laughs> and uh, I changed kitchen to spotlight. And instantly, of course, the song became about me, which it never was, I don't think. I mean, I'm pretty self-aware. But um, the video with Tarsem yeah. is what really pushed it over the edge. And that was probably the queerest video of all time. And that was kind of nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm harping on it because I heard it the other day in a shop that I was in and um, me and my partner stopped and listened to it and we both looked at each other and I don't know if we actually teared up or if we just had the feeling of tearing up. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like Ooh. the emotion came. I don't know if there were actual tears. It's amazing that, that the song to this day has this power to it and I I don't truly understand it. You know, I don't I don't know that it's the words. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why it has so much emotional resonance. But it's one of this, these songs that when you, you hear it, you know, the world stops and you're, you're put in the place of wherever this song is happening and you're in the void of the song. It's mystical. It's very, that's very generous. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me coming from you. Thank you. Just tell me about the experience of writing the word. Did the music exist first? How did it happen? The music just existed first. I know that Peter, Peter was tired of playing guitar and didn't, uh, R.E.M.'s former guitarist. Uh, after touring for nine, 10 years in the 1980s. And he was buying wild, interesting instruments that he didn't know how to play. And his experimentation as a musician was to throw roadblocks in front of himself by trying to play something that he couldn't play. So this was one of his first experiments on mandolin. We still have the original cassette that he gave me of Losing My Religion, and it is exactly the same arrangement. Wow. It sounds identical to what wound up uh, as the final version of the song. So that's all Peter. You know, everybody hurts was uh, Bill Barry and um, Supernatural Super Serious was Mike Mills. I mean, those guys uh, quite often would turn in things that were so brilliant. And, you know, even they, I think in, in the arrangement, they might not realize that, well, I can flesh this out with a story. I can, I can throw a trajectory and a narrative into this and make this arrangement work. Sometimes, no. Sometimes we had to make a lot of arrangement uh, changes in order to fit the vocal or the melody into the song. I was always about shorter songs. I always wanted to get in and get out, mm -hmm. leave them wanting more always. And so a lot of the stuff that I'm doing as a solo artist is much, it's very pop, but it's in incredibly short songs. Would you start with like a scat vocal or would you start by writing? To, just tell me the process of you, you hear music, you're inspired by it. How do you get to a song? What's your process? Historically, I, I hear music and I'm inspired by it. And there's a melody that comes along and I close my eyes and I see a landscape and music translates to me as, 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 a, as a visual. And so good music, bad music is just fucking horrible like bad like what my dentist was playing this morning by the way i hope he's listening <laughs> um, i was like i was like we have to we have to talk about the music we have a very good rapport now because his uh dental assistant and he have very different musical tastes so they'll they'll throw a song on when i'm there just to see how i react and one of them will say michael and i'll say like turn it off now like next 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 and she'll crack up because she'll have told him he's gonna hate this song this is not a good song do you write just the number of lyrics that are in the song or are there sometimes more verses? Like, how, how does it happen? There's often, there's often more verses, but it really depends on how much I, going back to the conversation earlier about trusting your gut. Mm -hmm. You know, when I close my eyes and I see that music, I always saw my job as, my job is now to put a narrative on top of that, to, to create some kind of story that people can follow along with. And it doesn't have to make really linear sense. I'm really good at not making linear sense. Sometimes it makes a lot of sense. And sometimes you need a little bit of a, 
an indication of, of, of what's happening, but uh, clues as to what the story is actually about. Uh, and I, I hope to provide those as a lyricist. I hope that by the end of the song, I will have provided some clue to what's going on. I did that with R.E.M. and I, I'm doing it now as a solo artist. So hopefully it's going to work. There's another song that we're working on right now. The working title is I'm the Charge. And everything you need to know about this character is in the second verse and the last three words, which have nothing to do with the rest of the song. But they set up another song, which is an entirely different piece of music. Mm-hmm. And it's the same character 30 years later. And I'm following the arc of this character over time. And I'm imbuing this character with this extremely shifting sense of self, going from someone who's extremely vulnerable and quite difficult, but always in charge, always in power, to someone who's extremely invulnerable and almost cynical uh, in their work. Uh, but they have developed, they've developed this very tough skin, but they're now using the vulnerability of, of their youth to be able to create work that, although is uninteresting for them, inspires others. Boy, that sounded like a really bad off-Broadway play, didn't it? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm talking to myself here and you just happen to be present. Sorry, Rick. Anyway, the song is called I'm the Charge and the, the, the second song is called, uh, it doesn't have, the working title would be Pull of Love. Will the whole album have an arc like that? I don't know yet because I'm still working on it. No, I don't tend to write. I, I will revisit characters from time to time. And and then I have to question, often I have to question myself, like how, how did I embody this person? What 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 gender did I make them? What what political leaning did I give to them? What what horrible position did I put them in that they now have to work their way out of or have some cathartic moment that pulls them out of it? Like the song Sad Professor or one of my favorite R.E.M. songs, Country Feedback. That song, I think... And in my memory, we, I sang it one time, and that was it. I think in the, the re-release that the band put out, the 25th anniversary re-release, uh, they found a demo. But uh, you hear at the very beginning of the song, I say, these clothes, uh, and, and I, I pause because I came in too early. And then I say, these clothes don't fit us right, and I'm to blame. It's all the same. It's all the same. I didn't know the song. I, I hadn't worked it out. I hadn't mapped it out. Peter has this memory of me walking into the studio with a piece of paper that had a drawing of an Indian, a a pencil drawing of an Indian on it and a few words on a piece of paper. And he said he walked in with that and that was the song and that became Country Feedback. The the working title was Country Feedback because it sounds like a country song. It was very obviously inspired by Neil Young and uh, and it has feedback on it, feedback guitar on it. So the working title became the title of the song. I remember performing it and uh, it was at John Keane's studio in Athens, Georgia, and it was in an ISO booth, and I was in headphones, which I can't stand to sing into, because uh, the, the engineers can never get the mix right for me, and uh, mm-hmm. it makes me crazy. I hear myself too much, or I don't hear enough, and I, I like singing into an open mic at a, at a desk, but that, of course, causes all kinds of problems with digital technology. Anyway, I remember singing it, walking out, and walking out of the house and the studio, and I was done. That was it for the night. I didn't remember it until, I don't think they even played it for me the next day. The band listened to it, and I think they listened to it a few times. And then I came in two days later and listened, and I was like, this is it. I'm not going to re-sing it. That's it. That's the so take. Great. I did the same thing with World Leader Pretend, Rick. Another song that the the heavy of obvious inspiration there was Leonard Cohen. I lifted everything that I could from from that beautiful beautiful writer of a man, beautiful man of a writer. And, um, and I used, you know, uh, the, the language, uh, the, 
the dialect of war to describe um, a, an inner battle, a, a deep emotional turmoil uh, inside the, the the protagonist of that song. And I sang it once and I was so impressed by myself that it was the first time that REM put, uh, that I allowed um, the lyrics to be printed on the album sleeve. We were, I think, uh, nine years into our career at that point. And I had yet to, to lip sync in a video. I, I refused to do it. I thought it was too cheesy. So we were, you know, we, we I mean, as a band, we always knew what we didn't want to do. We knew that we didn't want to be cheesy. If we were going to be cheesy, we were going to be cheesy on our own terms. And God knows we were. Uh, but they were on our terms. Yes. And they were quite beautiful when it happened. You know, yes. there, was a, a, there was an element of cheese there and, and, and sentimentality. And that's okay. That's part of pop music. But it was on our terms always. And uh, I'm, I'm so very proud of that. You know, what we left behind is this body of work that... I include the the times that we fell on our face publicly, and I did many, many times, and I humiliated and embarrassed myself over and over again in public. But guess what? I embraced those moments along with the, the hit singles and, and the triumphs and the moments of, 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 of absolute joy. Uh, and being able to meet people like yourself and Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan and Patti Smith and Tom Verlaine, my hero, you know, I don't even like guitar. And here's Tom Verlaine, you know, the one guy that I could actually watch play guitar and not blink for 40 minutes, uh, other than Peter Buck, of course. Yeah, what a life uh, that provided me and uh, what, a, what a journey I've been on. I, I feel like really a very, very lucky person. I had this ridiculous teenage fantasy dream idea of what I was going to do with my life. And I actually, with a lot of work, I actually made it happen. And And here I am kind of looking back on it, uh, but I'm also I'm also looking forward because, you know, the songs that we've put out, right, that I put out, each song for the first year of its release, all of the money that I would make on that song, whether it's through a movie, through a TV show, uh, being in a commercial, which hasn't happened yet, but I'm offering it up right now on this podcast, all of the publishing that I would make from the first year of the release of that song uh, goes to a charitable organization of my choosing. Uh, so far, it's been uh, Extinction Rebellion and Pathway to Paris. Extinction Rebellion uh, for the first song that I released as a solo artist, which is called Your Capricious Soul. And then Pathway to Paris is an organization uh, trying to hold uh, the United States and other nations to the Paris Agreement uh, in terms of environmental, uh, a blueprint for where we need to go in order to not uh, wipe ourselves out and, and take a lot of other species with us. And uh, that was a song called Drive to the Ocean, which I'm extremely proud of. And I think I'm just going to release them a single at a time. I don't feel like I need to compete with Dua Lipa or um, name whoever's amazing right now. Who's amazing? Rosalia. What the fuck? She, where the fuck did that come from? She's incredible. We'll be right back after a break with more from Michael Stipe and Rick Rubin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, 
Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. We're back with Michael Stipe, but before we jump back into this conversation with Rick, let's hear his new song, Future If Future. See you. We all know what 
how that uh, got written. Tell me the story of writing it. It's one of those songs that just flew out and I didn't think too much about the lyric. The music, I, I believe most of the music came from Andy LeMaster, but we worked together in the studio. We, you know, I don't play an instrument. I, used, I played classical piano when I was a, a child. I played accordion as a, as, a, as a very young man. I think I was eight or nine years old when I picked up accordion. And then I stopped both and forgot everything that I knew about music and read, reading music because I read classical uh, piano off, you know, off the, off the, um, off the page, but, but I don't play anything. So I became the singer in R.E.M. and that's good and fine. And from time to time, I would like, you know, have a guitar and pretend like I could play it, but I couldn't, I still can't play an F or a, um, a, a B, but I started writing after R.E.M. disbanded 10 years ago, I started writing music on synthesizer and really enjoyed the process and realized how really difficult composing is. I mean, it's a way different story from lyrics and, and melodies and, and, Singing, you know, it's a, just a way different thing. And also working on music, I, I would almost go into a trance state, uh, which is good because I would forget who made the music. And it was, in fact, me or me and Andy working together. <laughs> this one is mostly Andy, I think, musically. And, and then the, the lyric flew out of me. I didn't, I didn't really question it or, or overthink it. And I think that that's really my superpower now. My superpower uh, as the singer of R.E.M. was realizing that as a man, presenting as a man in, in, my, in my era, in my time period, that my vulnerability and my ability to express that vulnerability was, was really something that we had not seen in a way that wasn't just super hyper cheesy and, and, and manipulative. So that vulnerability became my superpower. Now, I think my superpower is recognizing that and my gut is really, really good. And if I don't overthink things, you know, write drunk, edit sober, you take that and extrapolate it and you move it into a not like Norman Mailer or Gore Vidal like universe. Uh, I write without thinking. I, I write, I go into, I go into a trance and I write, 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 write. And then I edit and I edit sober and I, I, I go, okay, that's crap. That's bad poetry. That's not bad, not great poetry. But if we repeat it a few times, maybe it's a good chorus. And you use those tricks that you learn, but I don't overthink things anymore. I just kind of let them flow out. And when they're not flowing, I put them aside and I go work in photography or, or other mediums. And I'm working in all these different things now. I'm putting out photo books and uh, I have a big show in Milan. I'm having a solo exhibition at the ICA in Milan of all the work that the plastic uh, work that I do, the stuff that's sculptural or photo based. Uh, and there will be a music musical component to that show. But yeah, I, I, if, if the music is feeling a little stale, then I just jump to one of my other things or one of my other things. And I come back around and I listen to it with fresh ears and I go, wow, that's one of the worst courses I've ever written. So let's re-examine it. I want to come, <laughs> I want to come to the show in Milan when that happens. Oh, beautiful. It's opening in early November uh, 23. You said something interesting that your superpower in REM was your vulnerability when did you realize that? Because I imagine in the early days, you were just vulnerable. You weren't somebody who understood that your vulnerability was a superpower. No, I didn't understand that at all. I didn't understand. I mean, I didn't understand from the very early moment that we spoke about where I decided at the age of 15 that I was going to become a singer in a band. It didn't occur to me that you have to 
You have to have a modicum of talent. You have to be able to do something. You have to be able to stand on stage and perform. You have to be able to write songs. You have to be able to sing those songs. You have to work with other people. You have to travel nonstop. You have to eat really shitty food most of that time. You have adrenaline uh, and addiction issues to deal with because adrenaline is the most hardcore drug I've ever, ever in my life taken. And I've taken everything, but you know, I quit drugs when I was 23. I drink occasionally now. I still love to drink, but I know it's not good for me. So I try to limit it. I'm thinking about going back to gummies. You know, I'm excited here in New York, you know, it's, it's now illegal and I haven't touched weed since I was 17 years old. So, although actually the truth is I worked on a record with a uh, Fisher Spooner kind of accidentally reintroduced me to music about five years ago. And uh, I wound up producing their album. And it's a, it's a really good record called Sir. And it's a very, 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 very queer, very gay record in terms of its uh, thematic content and its trajectory. But in, in writing that record, I experimented with weed a little bit. And I smoked weed for the first time since, wow, uh, I was a kid. And uh, some pretty good songs came out of it, I have to say. So who knows? I, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm really, really sensitive. Like I'm really sensitive. Uh, I'm allergic to all these foods and I'm allergic to all this stuff. And I have to be very careful, you know, like what kind of things I breathe and all this blah, blah, blah. But so I can take the tiniest amount of weed that would, you know, that would other people wouldn't even feel and it knocks me over. And, uh, but it, it, it makes for really good lyric writing. So maybe I'll, maybe I'm going to move into weed now. That'll be a third act for me. What's your favorite song on the Fisher Spooner record? Well, the one that I wrote weed to is called I Need Love. And I'm actually, I'm thinking about covering it. I think it's such a good song. What motivated you to, to feel like it's time to do a solo project? It's, it's interesting that you haven't done one yet. And the fact that now you're deciding to do one makes it interesting with this window of time. I can be really honest, and I've said this before, but I love my voice. I love my singing voice. I don't like my speaking voice, although I'm really glad we're talking, but... I, I love my voice and, and I feel like I have a limited amount of time in which to use that voice. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like, I mean, I'm not a Christian. I, I, I'm not, I'm a deeply spiritual person, but I don't really follow any particular path. But, but I, I do feel in a way that, um, I don't know, I've got a beautiful voice and I really, like, I really enjoy it. And a lot of people like hearing me sing and, and music is a really powerful medium. And I, I feel like I've got a lot to say. So why not use that voice and stop talking? <laughs> Just get back to singing. And I enjoy it a lot, you know? It's my first real love was, was photography. And, and I've now been putting out a, a book a year and I, I intend to do that for the rest of my life. And I hope that I live a really long time. I hope we have 40 or 50 more books coming as much as, as much as I find immense joy in putting together images that I've taken or things that I've collected and showing them to, to kind of introduce the way that I see and feel and interpret the world and the way that I move through it. Cause I do feel like, you know, we're all unique in our own ways, right? We're all little snowflakes, but but there is there is something to the way I put things together that that I I think is is enjoyable for other people. So I really like doing that. But nothing beats coming up with a lyric and a melody that people come back to you two days, three days, four days later and say, I can't stop singing your song. Thank you for that. That song was there for me at a very important moment for me. You know that kind of stuff. I sang last night. In fact, Rick, you knew Hal Wilner, I'm sure. And uh, we had a memorial for him last night at St. Anne's Warehouse. And um, I did a song written by his best friend, Lou Reed, uh, that I had covered for the Velvet Underground uh, record that came out with Todd Haynes' documentary. Mm -hmm. And I, I told Hal, I said I would participate in the project if uh, I could have the first song on. It, it's, a, it's a recreation of the first album by the Velvet Underground, which in my life ranks as one of the top five records of all time. Yes. You have to interpret 
music like that in the same way that you interpreted Hurt and handed that to Johnny Cash and said, do what you do with this. And he took that and he made it a better song than it ever was or ever will be again. And we have you to thank for that. Uh, and Mark Romanek did the video for that, correct? Yes. Beautiful, astonishing video with June. One of the most, it's really one of those like moments. And, you know, I know you're not a boastful person, but you should be very, very proud of, of that moment that you offered all of us uh, just in that one single collaboration. That's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Do you like singing in front of people? Do you like the feeling of being in front of an audience? Um, I blacked out last night on stage because uh, there were no vocals in the monitor and I just went into kind of, uh, I had rehearsed it three times. So I don't really remember the performance, but everything before it and after it was okay. As soon as I found out that the, vo the voice was actually in the house, uh, then I was okay. I couldn't tell if my voice was actually being projected into the house or not. But yeah, when you do something that's not just one song uh, at a memorial or on a TV show, uh, you know, you, you, you go into a adrenalized state. And as I mentioned earlier, that's the most powerful drug I've ever taken. And it's why I think so many of our people uh, and I'm speaking of creative people, wind up in trouble because you you come off of a tour, or you wind up, uh, you finish a movie, or, you know, if you're in the Harlem Globetrotters, or if you're, you're a, a professional athlete, you stop the tour and your adrenaline is running at a rate that, that's superhuman, and you can't really match that with, with anything. The only thing that I found, and, and I started this in the late 80s, uh, to combat uh, that um, that uh, hyper-adrenalized uh, state was uh, acupuncture. Uh. Um, a lot of body work, but mainly acupuncture really helps a lot to to kind of retune yeah. uh, the uh, endocrine system and particularly the, the kidneys, the kidney energy, as the, as the Chinese would, would, would call it. Beautiful. So it's almost like it's just that the nervous system is on high alert and you just need to calm it down. And, and it seems like acupuncture does that. Fight or flight. And then, you know, after after you make an album and you know this from from working on from working as a producer and otherwise, you know that you you have this kind of postpartum, you know, you you work, you intensely work on something. So you put everything that you are into it and, and then it's over. And whether it's a tour or a record or what, what, what have you, you go through this kind of postpartum and, and the, adre the adrenaline has to go back down to not a fight or flight kind of place. And for most people, that's very, very difficult. And to try to, to, try to mimic the, the high that you get from adrenaline is literally impossible. Well, I, I want to thank you just for the songs. There, there are so many songs that you've written that have meant so much and that are so beautiful. And uh, I just want to thank you because I love them. I love the songs. Thank you, Rick. And I love you. And I, I, I love how, um, well, I love receiving compliments from you. But, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I, I, can, I can pretend to have humility. Uh, but I'm really proud of uh, a lot of the work that I've done in, in my short time on this earth. And thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, obviously, I'm a giant fan of your work. And um, and it's a, it's a great pleasure. After all these years, we haven't seen each other in some time. Huh? It's been a while. But it's really, it's really great to talk to you and, and be able to just uh, unravel some of these, some of these threads. Huh? Same. And we will change that and see each other soon. I know at one, one place or another, maybe in Milan. You never know. Uh, please come to Milan. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to Michael Stipe for giving insight into his early days with R.E.M. and sharing details about his upcoming solo project. To hear our favorite R.E.M. and Stipe solo songs, check out the playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. 
Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you catch season three of This Is Digital? Season three of This Is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on season three of This Is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com.